Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients but big medicine. This is part two of our discussion with Austin Larson, who is one of the metabolics doctors here in Colorado. The first part, if you haven't listened to it, go back and check it out. It focuses on the neodate in the first couple of days, newborn screens not back, and they show up in your ER crashing or with some other concern for metabolic disease, what do you do? Part two today is on the kids who are slightly older and they either already have an existing diagnosis or they're showing up with signs of a disease that might've been something that didn't show up on newborn screen or doesn't present until they're older. One way to think about this is your pretest probability. So I, I try to think about everything from a perspective of Bayesian reasoning. So your pretest probability is much higher for an acutely ill neonate who has not had a newborn screen result back yet. The newborn screening is not perfect. It's a screen. It's a public health measure. It's not a diagnostic test. So it cannot be considered to be the be-all and end-all. It can't be considered to be a, a test that's diagnostic of all metabolic disorders, both because there are metabolic disorders that can't be tested for on newborn screening, like OTC, which we talked about, or glycogen storage disorders. So those are things that you, you, know, you have to maintain a higher clinical suspicion for. The majority of the organic acidemia patients are going to be detected. The majority of the fatty acid oxidation patients are going to be detected on newborn screening. So while it doesn't rule out those disorders, your pretest probability is a lot lower in a kid who's had a newborn screen that was normal. Now that said, I had a one of my most severe, acutely ill patients last year was a patient with an organic acidemia that was missed on newborn screen. It's something that is tested for on newborn screen, but this patient was missed. And she, I went back and looked at her newborn screen. She was 0.01 micromole away from flagging uh, on newborn screen. Uh, um, but you have to, you know, you have to draw a threshold somewhere. And we already tolerate a lot of false positives in order to make the newborn screen maximally sensitive. Right. But it, it cannot be completely sensitive. Um, and so there are kids that are missed by newborn screen who will be acutely ill, who do have these disorders. Um, so you can't put them out of your mind, but just recognizing, you know, as, as you do, your job is to triage um, and to consider the likelihood of, of different categories of, of diseases, organic acidemias and fatty acid oxidation disorders are, are less likely okay. um, in, a, in a kid who's had a normal newborn screen. And then is, is the workup basically the same? The, the same labs and the same approach with if they're acutely ill, we're doing D10 at one and a half times maintenance um, and then sort of going from there with the same approach to the, the neonate? Yeah, yeah. So I would say the approach is the same, but we rely on you to be considering other things and other things are going to be more likely in that in the setting of an older child. Right. Even if it's a, a really compelling severe acidosis, we really want you to be thinking about the toxic ingestions and shock and, you know, all the other things that that you go through in terms of the differential of acidosis. So one of the other categories, we haven't gotten into this, but I want to ask you about it because I know this is your uh, one of your particular areas of focus of things that wouldn't show up on a newborn screen but might present later is a, a primary mitochondrial disorder. So is there a way to break those down, sort of how do they present? I um, think I've always thought of them as a uh, issue with um, energy production, but I don't know if that's the right way to, to approach them. Yeah, to a, to a first approximation, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I need you to dumb it down for us. <laughs> so there are several hundred different 
mitochondrial disorders with a wide variety of different presentations. In terms of what might present acutely in childhood, you know, one thing to think about is called Lee, Lee disease or Lee syndrome. So Lee syndrome is the descriptor for the clinical presentation that is most commonly associated with acute neurologic disease in childhood. And that typically takes the form of bilateral basal ganglia or brainstem injuries. What that might look like to you in the ED would be a child who has their first serious illness, you know, first significant gastro episode, maybe, you know, 6, 9, 12, 18 months old, or first significant respiratory illness where they really have a high fever, where they're not eating, where they're pretty, pretty systemically ill. And then at some point during that illness, they become uh, hypotonic, encephalopathic. You're probably going to be getting brain imaging in that setting. Right. Um, and my, you know, my guess is you're probably going to be talking to the neurologist first, and the neurologist will get brain imaging. And then if the uh, MRI appearance is consistent with Lee syndrome, then they would involve us on the metabolic side. I think it's relatively unlikely that the you know metabolic folks would be the first people that you call. It depends on the etiology of, of Lee syndrome, but um, a number of them will have lactic acidosis as a as a, another feature in addition to the acute neurologic injury. Lee syndrome is specifically related to the, the general presentation of acute neurologic injury, but it's not specific for metabolic disease. Am I understanding that right? Uh, so the term Lee syndrome, so that's L-E-I-G-H, um, Lee syndrome is, is specific to mitochondrial disease. Okay. And so the, the basic definition of that would be a patient with mitochondrial disease who has bilateral basal ganglia and or brainstem lesions on brain MRI, plus or minus lactic acidosis. And that there are about 100 different mitochondrial disorders that can present as Lee syndrome. Okay. Um, and that's the most common single presentation of uh, mitochondrial disease in infancy and childhood. Why is the damage focused in those places? So um, we see damage in those areas in a variety of different energy failure disorders. So another one that we may talk about is gluteric acidemia. You get a, a very similar pattern. The brain MRI can be indistinguishable from Lee syndrome caused by mitochondrial disease. Okay. So it, it seems to be the area of the brain that's most sensitive to energy failure is how I would say it. And that's yeah. why we get this consistent clinical presentation of Lee syndrome. The other mitochondrial disorder that I that I would mention in terms of a, a pediatric onset disorder to have some index of suspicion for is, is called pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency. And so uh, a couple of our patients with pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency have had significant enough lactic acidosis that they are at baseline having small breathing. And they have been seen you know, multiple times in different acute settings diagnosed with asthma and sent out with an inhaler. But it's, you know, it's important to, to think in the setting of the emergency room, this is a kid who, at, you know, by my visual exam of respiration, has respiratory distress, but the lungs are totally clear. It's important to take that next step and not just say, yeah, it's probably still asthma, to say, eh, let's think about a metabolic acidosis in the setting of this, this kid who's you know, potentially kusmaling. Yeah, per persistent tachypnea that, that doesn't really seem to make sense for the patient uh, presentation is one of those things that actually makes me sit up and go pay attention to that kid in the in the ER because I feel like those those are more often something that we get missed and then and comes back later because they have something that's not the typical cough, cold, runny yep. nose, asthma, you know, primary lung issue that's making them breathe fast. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's going to be DKA 
10 times or 50 times for every one time <laughs> that it's pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency. But if they don't have a ketoacidosis and they still have Kussmaul breathing, then that would be an indication to check lactate in my right. mind. Anything else that you want to say mitochondrial disease wise? This is, uh, your, this is your platform for yeah. all of the ER docs, to, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, so at, at least in our clinic, all of the patients with mitochondrial disease uh, should have an emergency room letter that hopefully they would be able to provide to you or it would be available in the records at your hospital. The recommendations are, are pretty nonspecific, mainly just, you know, adequately supporting the patient uh, in terms of everything else that you do, evaluating for infection, blood pressure, all those things. But the the you know the other thing that to think about is just to get these kids caloric support as early as possible. Um, so high dose glucose, and at least at our hospital and and at a lot of other places, you can add intravenous lipids as well in the emergency yeah, room. Yes, so maybe this will be a good time to talk about. So you know, if, if we've got th this is the situation I more often interface with with y'all is known patient has a you know known disorder who comes into the ER because of a, a concomitant acute illness or or mental status change, and assuming they have their letter with them, great. But what's the what's the general things that you all think about when constructing those letters to tell the ER what to do? One thing to think about is that these letters are they're conservative by design. So, you know, so a, a disorder that we haven't talked about yet, but it's a, a relatively common organic acidemia is called gluteric acidemia. We, we write a, a fairly conservative emergency room letter for those patients because they're pretty much asymptomatic until they have irreversible brain injury. On purpose, we try to instill some healthy fear into the families and hopefully by the transitive property also to the providers that are taking care of those families, that there are some disorders, gluteric acidemia being one of them, where any acute illness really has the potential to cause irreversible brain injury. So I would just keep that in mind for, for those of you who practice at, at an academic center and have seen these patients 100 times, put them on D10, admitted them to the floor, and they've been fine every time. That's by design. The reason for that is, is that the alternative really is pretty catastrophic. So. so so is the is the issue for them that when ill they they don't tend to take in as many calories on their own as usual or is it that increased metabolic demand from fever from illness puts them at greater risk or some combination of both? Both. Yeah, we don't you know, we don't have an absolute idea of exactly what the pathophysiology of of brain injury and in, in gluteric acidemia and, and other organic acidemias is, but we know that through kind of historical controls Patients who have really aggressive management of acute illnesses have dramatically lower incidence of permanent neurologic injury. So it's kind of the principle of if something is going pretty well, then don't don't rock the boat. Um, Fair enough. So um, and that's that's why we have those acute illness protocols in place. One resource that I would like to point out for those of you out there: if you have a patient come in who clearly has a, a metabolic disorder but does not have an emergency room letter with them. There is a group called the New England Consortium that has created acute illness protocols that are, for the most part, they're pretty indicative of what any metabolic center would do, at least relatively close. So you can just Google New England Consortium Ornithine Transcarbamylase Deficiency or New England Consortium Metabolic Acidemia, New England Consortium Gluteric Acidemia, and you'll get a, an acute illness protocol that you could Put into place for those patients, you know, particularly for those families that that don't have their acute management letter with them. 
uh, let's say that same patient comes in and they look like they've got a cold, they've got fever and typical URI symptoms, but otherwise are are generally looking relatively well. Are there? Uh, I know that not all of those patients always end up requiring admission. So how do you how do you approach that? Does it depend on the disease or depend on the clinical state of the patient? Yeah, it's totally dependent on the disease. So, you know, one end of the spectrum is gluteric acidemia, which I mentioned, which is a a condition where uh, these kids are are really susceptible to acute brain injury. And we maintain an an incredibly conservative stance on how to manage them. Those kids are almost always going to get admitted. We're always going to want them on D10 as early as possible. But then there's a spectrum from there all the way down to there's a, a condition called 3MCC, Deficiency, so that's um, three methyl crotonyl CoA deficiency. Um, oh, three MCC. <laughs> so that's a um, that is a disorder that is on newborn screening in most places. There's actually a really a debate in the community about whether it should be on newborn screening. It is a disorder that is not penetrant at all. So penetrant in the genetic sense of what's the likelihood that you'll be symptomatic based on the fact that you have this diagnosis. So. Some recent analyses have, have shown that the penetrance of that disorder may be 5%. So, you know, if we're throwing the same resources at that patient with the 5% risk of some kind of acute decompensation as compared to the patient who has 100% risk of acute decompensation and severe enough illness, you know, we're probably not utilizing the resources of the hospital appropriately. We'll try to convey that to you. So every metabolic physician has a different threshold for admission and what what they're going to want to see in terms of just how many, you know, how much caloric intake can the patient get, just how sick are they. And it's really kind of a case by case basis. And it depends on the, on the diagnosis in terms of where that threshold lies. There were two things that came up that I I think might not specifically go here, but I don't, I don't know which one you want to talk about first is you mentioned intralipids. So for whom and when is that helpful? And then gluteric acidemia is one of those that I wanted to talk about only because it's on the differential for abusive head trauma. And is that something that you all are ever involved in or is that primarily thought of by the abuse pediatricians? And do you need a contact for metabolics if you've got a kid with what looks like diffuse brain injury that's getting worked up for why did that happen? So on the topic of intralipid, you know, one, we recognize that that's not always available. So it's, it tends to be academic children's hospitals that have the ability to get intralipid right up to the ED and get it started. So that's probably in the majority of settings, that's not going to be part of the emergency room management right. um, outside of a, a big academic center. But basically that is indicated in a couple settings for Almost all patients, except those that have a fatty acid oxidation disorder, you can't replace all of your typical caloric intake with just D10. And if you try, you're going to cause other problems in terms of fluid and glucose. Right. So that really gives us a, a way to get more calories in in a less disruptive way. So that is something that we've moved to being earlier and earlier in our process of managing these kids because, you know, we don't want them to get fluid overloaded. We don't want them to have a glucose of 300. We recognize that there are problems with just slamming every child with really high dose glucose. The other setting where it can be really helpful is kids that are on ketogenic diet. So a number of our patients with with metabolic disorders have seizures associated with that and have ketogenic diet as a treatment for their seizures. Additionally, that the disorder that I mentioned, pyruvate dehydrogenase deficiency, is something that is often treated with ketogenic diet. So those are the kids where you don't want to just have that knee-jerk reaction of, of starting high-dose glucose because it could be pretty problematic for them. So that's one question to always ask 
before, you know, as you're picking your IV fluids, is uh, is this kid on a ketogenic diet? And if so, then often we'll we'll try to get them as many calories as we can with lipids uh, and try to spare the the glucose if we can. Although it's not always possible. Yeah, and we we thankfully haven't had to deal with that very often where where they've clearly needed some immediate acute intervention. But the concern is if you have somebody on ketogenic diet who you uh, all of a sudden reverse that or give them big dextrose loads, you can put them into refractory status in addition to all of the other uh, issues that it causes. And so I feel like I tell the residents that fluids and glucose never hurt anybody, which is not entirely true. And these are these are some of the few instances right. where you actually have to worry about it. It's a very rare exception to that rule. Yep. Yeah. Gluteric acidemia is one of the more common metabolic disorders that we manage. And as I mentioned, it's a it's a pretty scary one for us because basically the kids are asymptomatic typically unless and until they have an acute irreversible brain injury. And the goal of our management is to prevent that from happening. There are some more kind of chronic effects of gluteric acidemia. One of them, for reasons that we don't understand, is macrocrania without megalencephaly, I guess would be the, the way to describe it. So a large skull without a large brain. And what that causes is a, a stretching of the bridging veins and the potential for subdural hemorrhage. Um, now, uh, subdural hemorrhage is a very uncommon presentation of gluteric acidemia, which is already an uncommon disorder. So it is part of a child abuse evaluation for a patient with subdural hemorrhage, but it is quite unlikely to be the diagnosis in that okay. setting. Anything else to hit on or that we missed? We haven't talked about galactosemia. So galactosemia is one of the more common metabolic diseases. The presentation in the neonatal period prior to the newborn screen coming back would be typically acute cholestatic liver disease, jaundice. For somewhat interesting pathophysiologic reasons, E. coli sepsis is a presentation of galactosemia. And the treatment for galactosemia is to stop lactose-containing feeds and start soy-based feeds or start IV fluids as, as the caloric supplementation. And these patients will respond within hours to stopping lactose-containing feeds, getting another source of calories. The most sensitive test for a patient with galactosemia is actually coags. So they'll become coagulopathic prior to any other metabolic perturbations. They should have a, a significant elevation in total and direct bilirubin and they will be typically encephalopathic, not feeding well, things like that. So that's one disease that's not uh, in our breakdown of, of things that we've, we've discussed so far. And that's going to be the end of our discussion with Austin. He mentioned a number of really good, very easy to use resources, notably the New England Consortium protocols for patients with metabolic disease who are acutely ill and the Vedimicum Medicum, which comes as a handbook, but more importantly, comes as a free app that I will link to both of those. I also mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast, but for those of you who are working at a center where you don't have your own local metabolics consultant, but you happen to be seeing one of these patients and they don't don't have the letter with them that they normally do that says what to do whenever they are sick. If you don't know who to call, the closest children's hospital is a great resource. And if for some reason that doesn't work out, if you contact or look up who does the newborn screening for your local delivery hospital, the number for the state lab, they always have a 
metabolic specialist that is on call that gets the positive results from those and knows what to do with them. And so your next resource would be getting hold of whatever consulting physician handles the lab calls. In summary, these conditions are overall very rare and outside of the major academic centers, most people are not going to routinely see these patients. However, you may be a person who is in a facility where somebody comes through because they're traveling or on vacation, or you may be the provider that first sees the three-day-old baby who is coming in with their first symptoms of their as-yet-to-be-diagnosed metabolic disease. If you happen to remember to grab the labs that we talked about in here to make your future metabolic physician's life easier, great. But if nothing else, please get them caloric support early. Our standard is D10 fluids, and that can be D10 water if that's what you got. At one and a half times your normal maintenance rate, there's a number of apps and online calculators for that if it's not something that you need to remember. Most of these illnesses with caloric support will avoid the devastating consequences, but be sure to track what the ammonia is doing because it is direct neurotoxin. And if it's not decreasing or it's elevated and increasing, they may need emergent transfer to a center that can provide dialysis for them. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really helps others find the podcast. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 